0: Do not turn to Leviticus. We have completed our study in the book of Leviticus. We have gone through a short series looking at the reasons for the incarnation, for the coming of the Savior into the world. This morning, to begin this new year, we also begin a new study. We will be looking at the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles, of course, uh, are comprised of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. In their book, Health, Wealth, and Happiness, David Jones and Russell Woodbridge highlight a disturbing trend in the church. They say this, a new gospel is being taught today. This new gospel is perplexing. It omits Jesus and neglects the cross. Jones and Woodbridge report that 46% of self-proclaimed Christians in the United States agree with the idea that God will grant material riches to all believers who have enough faith. 46%. This has been known as the Prosperity Gospel. Although it takes many shapes and sizes, the Prosperity Gospel promises material and physical blessings in this life as central elements of the Gospel. That being the case, the true central elements of the Gospel are pushed to the side. Those things like the finished work of Christ on the cross, the forgiveness of sin, these things take a back seat to prosperity. Sadly, professing Christians seem to be taking the bait. And not just here in America. This is spreading over large portions of the rest of the world. False teachers are alive and well. The problem of false teachers and false teaching is by no means a new problem, however. In fact, these battles are quite old. They go back 2,000 years within the church. When Paul was giving his final instructions to the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he warned them that savage wolves would enter the church and wreak havoc seeking to lure away disciples after them. And he said, these savage wolves would come in among the elders themselves. Which is quite sobering, particularly if you're an elder. One of the reasons why is we've discussed these issues and discuss these issues as they will come up in our study of the Pastoral Epistles. It's one of the reasons why God has given the church a plurality of elders. So there are safeguards against false teaching coming into the church. As we turn to 1 Timothy, we see that Paul's predictions as made to the Ephesian elders were not exaggerated. And they wouldn't require centuries to play themselves out. False teaching was staring the first century church at Ephesus square in the face. For a man like Paul, who gave his life to establishing and strengthening the churches, false teaching was a deadly cancer that had to be removed if the church was to remain healthy and continue on its mission. It is not a coincidence that as Paul met with the elders of the Ephesian church there in Acts chapter 20 and warned about false teachers coming into the church, then he now writes to his disciple Timothy whom he had put in charge of the Ephesian church at some later date. And one of the crucial issues that Timothy has to face is false teaching coming into that church. As we move through Paul's first epistle to Timothy, we're also going to consider other important issues that the Apostle addressed. Like any missionary or pastor or elder, Paul cared deeply about the people to whom he ministered. And he knew that what they needed was not human wisdom. They needed to stand on the truth of God's Word. (coughs) They needed to fix their hope on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was not enough for Timothy to communicate to the church at Ephesus those things that he remembered. From his time with Paul. It was certainly not enough for Timothy to give the Ephesian believers his own wisdom. I've often said, if you as a church are dependent upon my wisdom, you're in serious trouble. That's why when we come together on the Lord's Day in discipleship and our studies throughout the week and our breakfasts and our teas and whatever we're doing, we come to the Word. Because the Word is our authority. And the Word is our wisdom. There's nothing that resides in you. Except a foolish man. So we come to what God has said. And this is what Paul is reminding Timothy of. When we get to 2 Timothy, we will hear Paul tell Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove, review, exhort with great patience and instruction Paul's constantly bringing us back to the word so Let's begin by setting the stage for 1 Timothy. The letters of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are, as I mentioned earlier, referred to as the pastoral epistles. They're given this name because they have so much to say about the pastoral ministry, about elders, And how they are to lead and govern the church. And so we come to these letters because Paul is writing to Timothy and to Titus. And Timothy and Titus are men that Paul has put in positions of leadership in different churches. Timothy in the church of Ephesus in the Church of Crete. And these letters all have a number of similarities, but they are also unique as well. As we begin to think about this first in the pastoral epistles, we need to consider very basic questions that are answered for us in the first two verses. That is, who was the author? Who were the recipients? And what was the occasion for the writing of this epistle? First Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul. That's evident. Just look at the first two verses. The answers to these questions come out. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace Mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, hence the name of the epistle, 1 Timothy. It's the first letter that he wrote to Timothy. He wrote two. The other, of course, is 2 Timothy. Timothy is a disciple of Paul. He is a younger man than Paul, and he has assisted Paul in the ministry, having accompanied him on his various missionary journeys. He has been involved in ministry, he has been trained, he has been discipled, and the time came when Paul said to Timothy, You're ready. The church at Ephesus needs someone like you. Go to the church at Ephesus, lead that church and straighten out the things that are going wrong. At some point, he did the same with Titus, telling Titus to go to that church and appoint elders in that church. As we're going to see, that's one of the things that Timothy will be responsible for as well. And so when we get to chapter 3, Paul lays out for Timothy those qualities that he should be looking for when it comes to appointing elders in the church. Well, Paul, as you know, was the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is the author of 13 letters in the New Testament, and he had stationed Timothy there in Ephesus to do the difficult work of leading the church and combating false teaching. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. That's the primary task of 2. How does he do this? Well, Paul is going to bring him back to this understanding again and again and again. How does Timothy protect the church from false teaching? How does Timothy recover those who have been swayed by false teaching? He does it by preaching the Word. The Word is the sword which Timothy is to use in protecting the church and correcting error. It's a glorious task worth giving one's life to. And Paul wanted Timothy to be faithful in his calling as a minister of the gospel. And although we might tend to think that that the ministry 2,000 years ago would have been much less complicated than it is today, and perhaps more straightforward than it is today, Timothy had serious challenges of his own. Consider the context for Timothy and the church at Ephesus. Here, when Paul was writing, in the mid-60s of the first century. At this time, the city of Ephesus was a large, diverse, religiously complex metropolitan metropolitan area, not unlike any major city today. The Temple of Artemis was located in Ephesus. The Cult of Artemis was especially influential. It promoted not only blatant idolatry, but also the practice of the occult and sexual immorality. And this is the context into which Timothy steps as the leader of the church in that city. He's ministering within a culture that was not founded upon Judeo-Christian values as we hear so much of today. Very different from our own. At least in our culture, there is some faint echo of what the culture used to be and the influence that the church used to have. There was no such thing in Ephesus. The church is brand new. And Timothy is stepping into this context in which the paganism of his culture had deep roots For all of its history. Consider some of the issues Paul addresses within this church. Men and women need to be instructed about their God-given roles and conduct in the church's gathering. Faithful elders and deacons needed to be identified and appointed. Widows needed to be cared for properly the pursuit of wealth seemed to be a real temptation for some in this congregation. Does any of that sound familiar? Paul's concerns could easily be copied and pasted into a list of issues that the church continues to deal with in our day. As we mentioned earlier, the church at Ephesus was also dealing with this deadly serious problem of false teaching. We can't be too precise with regard to the content of the false teaching which had infiltrated the church of Ephesus, but Paul did give us some clues throughout the letter. Here's some of what we can piece together about these false teachers. They were, according to verse 3, straying in their doctrine. They were preoccupied, verse 4 tells us, with myths and genealogies and speculations. Verse 7 says that they were misusing the law. Verses 19 and 20 tells us that they were apparently immoral. Chapter 4, verse 2 says that their consciences were seared. One of the things they were trying to impose was... was abstinence from marriage and certain foods. They were forbidding marriage. And they were raising the issue of what you ate to a level within the church that it never should have gotten to. They craved controversy and quarrels, chapter 6, verse 4 says. And they were using godliness for material gain. The false teachers in the Ephesian church may have been influenced by the seeds of a heresy that later became known as Gnosticism. This heresy came onto the scene in full force in the second century after the writing of the New Testament. What seems more certain is that the false teaching in Ephesus had some strong Jewish elements. The Apostle mentioned that these teachers wanted to teach the law but they didn't know what they were talking about. Verse 7 says, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Now Paul's not talking about the Roman law here. He's talking about the law of God under the Old Covenant. Whatever the precise nature of the false teaching, we know it was dangerous because it Diverted people from the truth of God's word. Paul even referred to such false teaching as demonic. In chapter 4, verse 1. Timothy was dealing with false teaching, which put the gospel itself at stake. Unfortunately, some Christians have gotten the wrong idea that a book like 1 Timothy is only relevant for church leaders. Now this is definitely a book for pastors and elders. We certainly need to be familiar with it. But that doesn't mean that this is a book that can be ignored by the rest of God's people. Consider just a few important questions addressed by Paul. In chapter 1, how do Old Testament laws apply to Christians today? That was the open door for the false teaching that was occurring in Ephesus can women teach in the church? We'll see that in chapter 2. Chapter 3, who is qualified to be an elder or a deacon in the church? And how do we know what we should be looking for? What are those qualifications? Chapter 4, will speak to us about how we identify false teachers. Chapter 5 will speak to us about how we care for one another within the church, particularly in regard to widows. Chapter 6 will address wealthy Christians and their attitude toward their money. Anyone who professes to be a follower of Christ, who is a member of a local church, And those two, as we've said this morning, should always go together. Anyone who professes to be a follower of Christ who is a member of the local church needs to know what God has said about the church. Because every Christian is responsible for this. Every Christian is responsible for the church. Consider what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. This is the purpose statement of 1 Timothy. If you've got a pen. You should underline 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Here's what Paul says. In case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, no, Paul doesn't say I write so that you will know how you ought to conduct yourself. He says I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself. In other words, I'm writing to you so that you'll know how everybody should conduct themselves in the church. I'm writing to you so that you will know how the church is to function. This is the point. The letter is all about how God's people conduct themselves themselves in God's household. And Paul is not talking about our personal etiquette in the sanctuary. He's talking about our life together, not in the church, but as the church. God's household is us not this. The letter was written so so that we would know how to conduct ourselves when we come together as followers of Christ for worship and then when we spread out to serve the Lord throughout the week. This book clearly has relevance beyond the leaders of the church. Its message is for every believer in every church As the pillar and support of the truth, the church of Jesus Christ has a weighty calling. and God's grace and power are more than sufficient for the task. And so, we begin this morning with Paul's own introduction to his epistles. And we find first, as we come back to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that the church is God's idea. The church is God's idea. That may sound obvious. There's all kinds of conferences and books and magazines offering advice on how to do church today. We might want to listen to the one who created the church when we want to know how to do church. We dare not forget that Christ is the head of the church. The church belongs to him. He founded it by his life and death and resurrection. And since Pentecost, he has continued to build it by his spirit. Therefore, what matters most in the life of the church is what the Lord of the church has said. The opening words of 1 Timothy demand our attention. Paul, an apostle, We tend to skim through the greetings of these New Testament epistles as if they were throwaway verses. They're just something that someone writes, right? Like, we we get, well, nobody gets letters anymore, but remember when we used to get letters? And what would be the first line of the letter? Dear so-and-so. And it doesn't even register. Nobody really believes. Dear. It's a formality. Could be someone that you barely know, but they're calling you dear. You call my wife dear, and that means something. So we come to these epistles in the New Testament, and we take a look at them the same way. The first couple of verses we don't really need to pay attention to. Let's get to the meat of the epistle. And we do ourselves a disservice when we do that. Paul, an apostle, we're reminded in those few words that 1 Timothy bears the weight of apostolic authority. We can't just skim over any of it because it's being written by Paul, an apostle one who is sent. Now, apostle is a term that has two primary meanings in the New Testament. In regard to its general use, it refers to one who is sent. In this sense, the term could be used of an ambassador, or in a Christian context, as a missionary. But the term is also used in a technical sense. It was an office, consisting first of the 11 disciples, plus Matthias, who was chosen to take the place of Judas. Paul also shared this office, but as he himself says, he was one untimely born. And Jesus sent these men to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth, and several of them were used to write portions of the New Testament. In fact, every book of the New Testament is written either by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. So instead of treating the opening of this or any other New Testament letter as trivial, our reaction should be just the opposite. We should pay close attention because these words are given to us by a special representative of the king of the universe. Paul was specifically chosen. Jesus came and appeared to Paul on the Damascus road. And not even the other people who were with Paul understood what was going on or what was being said. Paul along with the other apostles is special and he bears the weight of authority. Paul would become the greatest missionary in the history of the church and the author of a significant portion of the New Testament. So the first thing that grabs our attention as we start reading through 1 Timothy is that it was written by an apostle. Paul emphatically made his point about being an apostle when he says in verse 1 that his apostleship is according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus. Jesus, who is our hope. That tells us that Paul did not make himself an apostle, and Paul was not elected as an apostle by men. He was appointed as an apostle by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We should not fail to mention that Paul ascribed this command of apostleship to both the Father and the Son. And in doing that, it becomes clear that Paul assumed the deity of Christ. If we were to read that Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior, and the Apostle John, that would be weird. You don't put a human being on the same level as God the Father. You put God on the same level as God. And that's what Paul's doing here. And he does it so naturally. This exalted view of the Son of God is also evident in verse 2. Where we read that grace, mercy, and peace are given by God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, to be clear, not everything an apostle said or wrote is authoritative. (coughs) We know, for instance, that Paul wrote a third epistle to the Corinthians. We don't have it. God has not seen fit to preserve it. We remember as well Peter's hypocrisy, described by Paul in Galatians chapter 2, on which Occasion Paul was forced to confront Peter to his face because Peter's very behavior was a denial of the gospel. Authority does not ultimately rest in a group of men, no matter how privileged their position may be. Rather, Scripture carries this authority, for as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy, All Scripture is inspired by God. Peter put it this way. Men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Paul's not claiming an authority inherent to himself. He's claiming an authority that has been given to him by the Father and the Son. Men are not inerrant. God's Word is the apostles were fallible men whom God used to write inspired, infallible, inerrant words. So the fundamental reason Timothy and the church at Ephesus and everyone since then needs to submit to this letter is because they are the breathed out words of God, which came through the instrument of a man we call the apostles fact that God's Word is inspired and inerrant is not only a doctrine to be affirmed, it is a firm foundation on which to stand in a culture and a world that suppresses and opposes the truth of God. When everything else around us seems to be caving in, we need to hear God's Word and submit to it knowing that what God has said is good and true and right. We can imagine that Timothy must have been a little overwhelmed by all of the issues that he was facing there at Ephesus. Along with the daily pressures of pastoral ministry, he had to deal with false teachers who were undermining God's word. In this sense, 1 Timothy is timely in that it was essential for Timothy because it dealt with actual issues that he was facing. It wasn't theoretical. You read Paul's other epistles. You read Peter's epistles. You read John's epistles. And this is what becomes so obvious. They're not ivory tower theologians. They're dealing with the practical day-to-day issues of living for Christ in a world that is opposed to it. Paul calls Timothy my true child in the faith. Elsewhere, Paul says something similar, demonstrating his affection for Timothy. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, But you know his proven character, speaking of Timothy, because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Timothy traveled with Paul often as a fellow worker in the ministry. Paul knew him well. And so we have here not only a letter from an apostle to a pastor, we have a personal letter from Paul to his friend, a younger brother in Christ. It's also essential to see that Paul's instructions here are meant for a wider audience than Timothy. As we see in verse 1, Paul spoke as an apostle, and his words, as recorded in Scripture, bear the authority of God. As we saw in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul is writing about things that are applicable not only to Timothy, not only to the church of Ephesus, but to the whole household of God, no matter where its local manifestation may be. Some will try to get around Paul's teaching in this epistle, particularly when Paul deals with the issue of women in ministry. And they'll try to say, no, 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 what Paul was saying was only for the Ephesian church. There was something unusual going on there, something unique there. What Paul says about this doesn't apply anywhere else. And Paul himself tells us that that's not true because what he writes is about how one, anyone, everyone, ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. It was not only the church in Ephesus, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the church, of of the truth. It is every church. We, are the household of God. We are the pillar and support of the truth. And so everything that Paul says applies to us. So this inspired letter is authoritative and timely as it deals with a number of difficult issues in the church, but it is also full of hope. And this is apparent right from the start in verse one, when Paul referred to God, our savior, Paul was not sent by some nameless deity. He reminded Timothy and all who read and hear this letter that the God he serves is the saving God of the Scriptures. So we are reminded at the outset of the letter that God is our Savior. And the next phrase, we see more good news. Paul was sent not only by God our Savior, but Christ Jesus, our hope. What a great way to begin this. Timothy, I know what you're going through. I know the struggles that you have. I know that there are people who are not respecting you and not following you because of your age and inexperience. But Timothy, I want you to know there's hope. There's hope in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is himself our hope. And then finally, Paul concludes his introduction with this. Timothy, here's what I want for you. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, this is one of those things that we tend to pass over quickly in the greetings of the New Testament. But consider what's being said here. God's dealings with His people are full of grace and mercy and peace. And that's good news for all of us. It's good news for those who lead Christ's church. And it's good news for everyone who is in Christ struggling with the day-to-day issues of faithfulness. Seeking to live a life devoted to the glory of God when everything in us and around us is trying to keep us from that. Neither Timothy nor the church at Ephesus was being called to clean up their act in order to gain God's favor. And neither are we. God pours out upon us grace and mercy and peace. Take that with you Mm -hmm. this morning. Take that with you into this coming week, which will present plenty of difficulties of its own. Mm -hmm. And remember, this is the God that we serve. A gracious God. A merciful God. A God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Thereby creating peace with his people. Father God, we want to thank you today. You are gracious. And you are merciful. And you give us peace. And we thank you for it, Father. Father, in the weeks and months to come... May our ears be open and attentive to what you have to say to us through these pastoral epistles. May they change us and make a difference in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.